That's what journalism is. It's telling people what's going on, giving them information. And I had overcome this fear. So that was, uh, as I'm talking to you, uh, there are different occasions like this in my life where things like this happened. And I think, I think these things build on each other and they help give you confidence in overcoming uh, fears, other fears that will come in your life or hard decisions that you have to make. Hi, everyone. This is Katie Archibald Anders. Welcome to Learning Courage, where we learn together how to live bigger, more courageously, and hopefully, ultimately, more joyfully. Hi, everyone. Today, I hand the mic to a very special guest, my dad, Rich Archbold. My dad likes to say he was born with ink in his veins. Having worked in the newspaper business for most of his life, starting out as a paper boy, as a young kid, working on his high school and college newspapers, and eventually at major newspapers in Nebraska, Miami, and Long Beach, where he still works today. In this episode, my dad shares his stories of working in journalism, as well as the personal experiences that have shaped his path. He talks about having the courage to make hard decisions and how each act of courage builds on the next and doing the right thing, even when it's difficult and potentially unpopular. As you'll hear, my dad is such a gifted storyteller and he reminds us that we are always learning and have something meaningful to contribute no matter what age we are. My dad is truly one of my heroes and one of my biggest teachers. And I can't wait for you to learn from him as well. So without further ado, let's get into our conversation. Here's Rich. Well, thank you, Katie. I really appreciate you asking me this. It's, it's a, a very important uh, issue you're talking about, this issue of courage. And frankly, when you first asked me to talk to you about this, my first inclination was I have not been courageous in my life. Uh, it's like I just do what I do. And I hadn't thought of it in terms of, of being courageous and that sort of thing. I guess I always equated being uh, courageous with sort of being physical, like uh, going to war and maybe saving someone's life, and giving up your own life, that sort of thing. But then as, um, as I got into it and, and did some more research, you know, I discovered the uh, courage can come in many different forms and in different ways. And very often, uh, the most courageous people are those people who, who just uh, 
can survive day-to-day things. And uh, so that, that got me to thinking about my own life and, and different kind of hard decisions I've made along the way, the people who helped me uh, make those decisions, et cetera. So, so I would like to talk about uh, sort of a variety of things um, where I had to make hard choices and, and frankly, where there was fear, where I had fears about doing different things. So um, the, I kind of separated as I, as I examined my, my life, I kind of uh, made two categories. One category were sort of personal decisions and things I did in my, for my personal life. And, and secondly, it was my career in being a newspaper man and being a journalist and how, uh, how decisions affected uh, my career, if you will. So I think what I want to do is talk about, about my, uh, my newspaper career and uh, some of Again, I, I feel uncomfortable saying, "Well, that was courageous of you, Rich." I mean, I don't see, I don't see my decisions as being courageous. I just see them as being the right thing to do, the fair thing to do. And if that's if that's being courageous, then then I guess I was courageous. And so let me start with the first instance I can remember. And this was a combination of fear and uh, and a hard decision. And that's when I was a, I was a freshman in high school in uh, at Glenbard, Illinois, and I had started working on the the school newspaper there uh, because I had an older brother. I have uh, seven brothers and sisters, and uh, four ahead of me had all gone to this high school, Glenbard. Uh, uh, the one. One brother was was a sports writer, and he kind of recommended me to the uh, English uh, teacher who was the advisor to the school paper, Helen McConnell. Well, Helen McConnell, one one day, I'm this little freshman. I didn't I had no idea what I was doing, and she tells me she wanted me to interview the principal of the high school. Well, the principal of the high school, his name was Fred Beaster, and his nickname to to the kids was the beast because he was this big guy and most of them didn't know him. And it was a pretty big high school. I went to like 1500 students. So she says to go interview him in his office. I said, what do you, what do you mean? What do I do? Uh, she says, just take your notebook, a pencil and write down, write down what he says. So I walk into the office. I was probably like four feet tall and uh, his office was was bigger than a house and he was seated at this desk you know and this big guy and I went up and I said hello Mr. Beaster Uh, I'm so-and-so I want to talk to you anyway I ended up talking to him for about a half hour and how I overcame my fear I don't know I guess it was because Miss McConnell asked me to do something and she was the teacher and but here's what I discovered as I left uh, Mr. Beaster's office, there were about 10, 11 kids came and surrounded me and they all asked me, they said, what did he say? 
How was he? Did he yell at you? Was he mean? What, what did he do? How was it? Well, I discovered, wow, being a reporter is, is pretty neat. Uh, first of all, I could get all this information from this man everyone else was afraid to talk to, and I had done it, and now they wanted to know from me what he said. Well, that's what journalism is. It's telling people what's going on, giving them information. And I had overcome this fear. So that was, uh, as I'm talking to you, uh, there are different occasions like this in my life where things like this happened. And I think, I think these things build on each other and they help give you confidence in overcoming uh, fears, other fears that will come in your life or hard decisions that you have to make. The next one that I can think of came when I was at the University of Illinois. And I am now a college student and I'm the editor of the Daily Illini, which was a pretty, a pretty big job. Uh, we had a circulation of 15,000. And uh, this one day I, I come into the office and the publisher, Paul McMichael says to me, oh, Rich, you've got a problem. I said, what's that? He says, well, Dean Turner wants to talk to you. Well, Dean Turner was Fred Turner, and he was sort of, sort of like Mr. Beaster. I mean, he's, he, he, he kind of ran the, the University of Illinois. He was the Dean of Students. I mean, he was, he really was, uh, uh, he wasn't a mean guy, but a lot of people didn't really know him that well. I had met him. I said, what does he want? And uh, Paul McMichael, the publisher, says he wants to talk to you about uh, that column that was in the paper today. Well, the column he was talking about was written by uh, one of our reporters, Bill Stevens, and he was writing about the parking problem at the, on the Illinois campus. So what, what, what university doesn't have a parking problem? But, but he was pretty critical of the administration, et cetera. So... I'm, the, I'm now a senior at, at the university and I go over to see Mr. Turner in his office and his office was three times the size of, of Mr. Beaster's. I mean, it was this huge, huge place. And I'm a little bit, a uh, little nervous. Well, I was, I was nervous about what, what does he want? So he kind of knew, knew me a little bit and he says, Rich, uh, yeah, I'd like to talk to you about something. And he pulls out the student directory and he says, I've, I'm going here through my the student directory, and I'm looking for this student named Daiquiri Collins. Well, Daiquiri Collins was the pen name uh, our reporter had used to write his column. He didn't use his real name of Bill Stevens, and he was, you know, he liked to sort of drink a little, so his name was Daiquiri Collins. So Mr. Turner says, I can't find any Daiquiri Collins. And I said, well, you know what? You're not going to find him in that book. And he says, why is that? I said, because that's a pseudonym. That's a pen name. That's not his real name. And he says, oh, is that so? I think he knew that, but he says, is that so? I said, he says, what's his real name? I said, well, you know what, Dean Turner, I'm not going to tell you. This was a moment of truth for me. And I suppose maybe I was being courageous. I don't know. Maybe I was just being stupid. But he says, and then he, he slams the, the student directory down and he 
comes up in his chair and he says, what do you mean you want? You won't tell me. I'm the Dean of Students. You've got to tell me. I said, no, I don't. He says, why not? I, I said, because I'm protected by the First Amendment. Oh, <laughs> oh and I, I really, I, I did. I, I didn't know where that came from, but I said that because, well, I knew what the First Amendment was. And I, I said, well, I have a right to know, he said. I said, listen, Dean Turner, if you have any complaints about, about him or anything, anybody else at the Thalia Line, I, you just talk to me. I'm the editor of the paper, and you go through me, and I'll relay this to, uh, to Mr. Collins. And he kind of sputtered and muttered and blah, 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 blah. And he said, you're dismissed. Go to class or go put out the paper or go do what you, know, what, what you have to do. So I turned and got out of the office and I thought, wow, that was kind of neat. Uh, I really didn't know how I was going to respond to him. I kind of had an idea that it had something to do with us using a pen name. As a result of that situation, in the next year, the publishing company that ran the, the student newspaper, they outlawed the use of pen names from then on. But they didn't do it uh, anything to me, uh, which is what I was wondering about. Was it, Were they going to discipline me, throw me out or whatever? And as I said earlier, I, I think I, I started building on all the, these different decisions, you know, that I made. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of more that might give you an idea of, uh, of some hard decisions. This was at the, uh, the Press-Telegram in Long Beach, where I am now the public editor and a columnist. But I was the managing editor and executive editor. And I'm going to tell you about a couple of situations uh, that, that were difficult. And one involved uh, the, uh, the gay community in, in Long Beach. Uh, Long Beach has a very significant uh, gay population and about, it's been now more than 30 years or so, uh, they started uh, what was called the Gay Pride Parade. And as a newspaper, we, we covered, covered that and we put the parade on the page one of the newspaper. Well, this alienated a lot of our readers uh, who didn't like it. They didn't th think uh, we should be doing that. In fact, on this one particular Sunday uh, or the Monday after the Sunday parade, uh, we've got over 200 cancellations. Uh, 200 people canceled subscriptions to the paper. That's a lot of people. For, for one story or, or one issue. I mean, we would get one here, one there for different things, but 200, uh, that represented a significant number of people, uh, you know, in the community affecting the newspaper, our readership, and of course, revenue. Well, uh, I was managing editor at the time, so I met with our editor, Larry Allison, and our publisher, and, and we talked about this and like what to do. And I basically said, I'm sorry, these people canceled, but we have to cover this parade and it deserves to be on page one. The parade represents a lot of people. And uh, I'm sorry that, you know, that we are upsetting some people, but that's, I kind of, <laughs> I remember saying that's the way it is. And, and again, 
I didn't think I was being courageous uh, talking to the publisher about that. Uh, he, he, of course, had the right to fire me. He could have said, just you do it this way or else. Uh, to his credit, he didn't do that. And so we obviously continued covering the gay pride parade. In fact, we even did more coverage on, uh, on the gay community and, and uh, positive stories about uh, what was going on in the gay community, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, th this was a little later in my life. Uh, I was now in my, my, my 40s or so, uh, but it, it was something that I was building on and that was basically to do the right thing. Um, there were some other, other stories. There was a, an investigative series we did uh, early in my career uh, in Long Beach. I, I moved there in 1978 uh, from the Miami Herald. And in the, in the early 1980s, we did an investigation uh, of the Long Beach Police Department and uh, police officers who had a lot of complaints about police brutality. And we put an outstanding reporter uh, on this to do, to, to do weeks of research. His name was Bob Zeller. And uh, uh, he, did a, he did a series and we called it With Undue Force. Well, as you might guess, as we were working on that story, we were getting calls. The uh, publisher was getting calls from people in the community, especially the police department, wondering why were we doing this and this would be bad for the police, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we dealt with those issues. Uh, we printed the series. And um, I think uh, to this day, it had, a, had a, uh, a big influence on the Long Beach Police Department, looking at what they were doing in these uh, police shootings, et cetera, and, and uh, police uh, uh, brutality issues. And, and that was good. And that was good. And uh, at the time, though, it was a hard decision. And we we thought about it a lot. I thought about it a lot. What are we doing? Why are we doing this? And this was the other thing that I had learned so often when uh, I was making decisions about stories going into the newspaper. Uh, I always had a, a couple of questions I always asked myself. And one of the main ones was, are you being fair? Are you being fair to the organization or the person you were writing about, especially if it was was negative? I learned a long time ago, and this was back in high school with Helen McConnell, Miss McConnell, who told me there are two sides to every every argument, every situation. And you as as a journalist, you've got to tell both sides. And and I always have followed that uh, th throughout my my career. I'd like to, Katie, talk some about some of the personal issues that, that were difficult uh, for me early on. And the, the main one that I can remember, I've, I've kind of forgotten about it. Some of these issues are so long ago that I've kind of forgotten, but at the time they were monumental. And it has to do with swimming. I was in Lake Michigan uh, with my sister Joan and a couple other siblings. And we were in uh, just on the edge of, the, of Lake Michigan. And, <laughs> but I remember I somehow went under the water and uh, 
was thrashing about and I thought I was drowning. And I come up somehow out of the water and my sister Joan is standing there and she says, what are you doing? I said, what, what happened? I'm she says, what are you talking about? You're standing in the, in the, on the, on the, in the sand, you know? And I guess I had bent over or something and I panicked, thought I was uh, drowning uh, when I really was just had my head under the water and, uh, and I wasn't coming up. Well, that from then on, I had this fear of swimming. I, and I was at that time, I was like seven or eight years old. So I never swam. I never, I always made excuses in high school when friends wanted to go swimming in the pool or lakes, I'd make up some excuse. And it wasn't until I got to, uh, uh, the University of Illinois and had to take, um, uh, you know, PE classes. And one of them was swimming. And I thought, I have got to overcome this fear. I mean, uh, this is stupid. You've got to do something about it. I was so embarrassed about it uh, that I felt safe doing it at the university because nobody knew me there in this class. But it, it turned out to be kind of kind of funny and almost fearful there. I'm in the class. So I'm standing over there with all these other guys and the, and the, uh, the instructor, he says, okay, I wanna see how many laps you can all do. And I'm thinking to myself, what do, you, what do you mean laps? I can't swim two feet. And it turned out though, that there were some guys from the, on the swimming team or something and they did like 500 laps. And I'm thinking, what is this? This is supposed to, I'm supposed to learn how to swim. Uh, they were taking it because it was easy, I guess. So anyway, the class ends, I'm standing there all by myself. He says to me, can you swim at all? I said, no, that's why I'm in this class. And he says, well, do you think you can make it across the width of the pool? And I, well, I knew how to like dog paddle. So anyway, I did that. He said, well, you stick with me and I'll, I'll teach you how to do it. Well, he did teach me. And I remember it was like a miracle. The, the first time I was able to, to swim and I did a couple of laps and I, I figured out how to breathe and, uh, which was so easy, but I had this fear that I had to overcome. And I, and I finally did that. And of course, now I swim all the time and I'm trying to teach my grandkids how to, how to swim, et cetera. And uh, what made me overcome that? I, I don't know exactly. I mean, I, but I just told myself, you've got, you've got to quit this, having this fear of, of not, not swimming. Um, there was, there were other things in, in my lifetime that, that have been difficult. And, and these were moves that I made. And I didn't think much of this until I started thinking about it because I started thinking in my career, I've written about stories about people who were unable to make a move or they were disastrous when they moved from one city to another or that sort of thing. And I told myself, wait a minute, you've moved four times. How did you do that? Well, I, I, as I look back on each time, there were sort of different reasons for it. And there were fears connected with, with every one of the moves. And the first one was out of the, when I graduated from the University of Illinois, it was like, where's my job going to be? I didn't have a job. I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, I guess I was kind of 
dumb about that. I figured I'd go up to my home in near Chicago and go walk into the Chicago Tribune and just get a job. Well, that didn't happen, but I did get a job offer from United Press International because they talked to me about different stories when I was the editor. And they asked me if I'd like to go to Lincoln, Nebraska to cover the state capital for UPI. Well, that was my first job. I went there on the train with no car. I, I found an apartment where I, I walked to the, to the state capitol building. And as I was doing all that, and as I look back, I'm thinking, God, how did I do that? Uh, I know I, had, I was nervous about it. I'd never covered a state house with a governor in the, uh, the governor's office and that sort of thing. I'm thinking, how the heck can I do this? Uh, somehow I overcame that. And I want to get in, into, I think, how... I did some of these things, but then I worked at the Omaha World Herald. Uh, I moved from Omaha to the Miami Herald and from Miami, I made a, a big move across the country uh, to the Press-Telegram in Long Beach. By this time I was married to uh, Pat and we had one daughter, Kelly, and we had a little, little dog named Bubbles. And we drove cross country in this old kind of old car where the air conditioning broke down in, uh, uh, in California, 120 degrees and needles. We thought we were all going to die uh, with no air conditioning. Uh, but I did that, and I became managing editor in Long Beach. And I wasn't so much fearful about that, I guess, as, as nervous. I was going to be kind of the boss of this uh, really good newspaper for the first time, the uh, kind of a big boss, managing editor. But I somehow overcame that, and I've now been here for 43 years. Uh, and if you ask me, what fears do you have now? Uh, if I was interviewing myself, I think I'd say, you must not have any fears. I mean, look what all you've done. You've done this. You've been an editor and, you know, and uh, at the Miami Herald and in Long Beach, et cetera. You write a column. You do this. You do that. You've done, you've done okay with your life. Well, there is, there is a fear I have. I don't like to use the word fear because to me, fear sounds like, oh, you can't, you can't do this or it's going to be terrible. I guess it's more a concern. And the concern is uh, uh, growing older. And this is now affecting me more than I guess I ever thought it would. Uh, I never thought I'd be as old as I am. And I hate to even say how old I am because when I say the number, it sounds like, oh my God. Uh, I know, when I was younger myself, I thought people who were 60, that was old. Well, now I am 83, 83 years old. Uh, I, I can't believe that I'm, uh, most of the people in, in my family passed away either in their 60s or their early 70s. I don't know anyone who has made it to 80 except uh, some of my, my siblings. I have seven brothers and sisters and uh, we lost one brother, Bill. Um, but I write for the paper and very often I do obituaries of, of older people these are elderly people, and they're usually in their 70s, 80s, or even their 90s, a couple in their hundreds. And 
as I do their life stories, I, I identify with them. It's like, well, what about my life? And what have I done? And what's going to be in my obituary? And the, the main question is, how much longer do I have to live? Plus, I'm always kind of reminded of my age. Uh, I've stopped using hair coloring, and now my hair is now kind of white and gray. And I, I keep wondering, should I put that stuff back on again? I, during the pandemic, I didn't use it because I wasn't going anywhere anyway. Now I'm going back out again. It's like, oh, should I, should I use that coloring? Uh, but as I write about other people and their lives, um, and this, this really hit me uh, a couple of weeks ago when three of my very closest friends all died within a few weeks of each other. And they were all 93 years old. One woman had just turned 94. One was the man who gave me my first job as a paper boy in Lombard, Illinois. The other was a, a close friend and reporter named uh, Bud Pagel, who, who I worked with in Omaha and then Miami. Uh, and the last one was the newsroom secretary and my personal assistant, Luana Eldred. And they all had a huge impact on my life. And now they're all gone. And uh, each one died of, of different, different uh, health issues. Uh, it is affecting me, uh, my age in the sense that when, when you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, you're, you're, you're building a career, you're starting a family, as I did. Uh, but at the age I'm at now, it's not like I'm starting a new career. In fact, the thing I'm asked all, I'm asked two questions. Uh, when are you going to retire or why don't you retire? And I say, well, what do I, why do I have to retire? Who said I have to retire? Who says you got to retire? Uh, when I think about it, I think I'm doing what I love to do. I write about people. I love writing about people, especially people who don't get uh, their names in the newspaper very often and they're doing wonderful things in the community and, and, their, and their voices need to be heard. So I, I get great joy out of that. Uh, and I say to myself, just keep doing that. What, what more do you want? That's, uh, uh, that's what, that's what you, you like to do. Some people say it's a gift. I don't know if it's a gift, but it's something I do like to do and have to work at it. Uh, so I'm doing that. And, um, I, I read so much now on uh, elderly people who are writing about what what do they do, you know, in their in their later years, and and I get uh, I get really uh, uh, excited about that, and I love the idea that hey, your life you got a you got a lot of years left, so make so make the most of them, and uh, and so that helps me overcome whatever. Like I say, I don't have a, a fear of passing away. It's just, it's like, what am I going to do? Or how, how many years do I have left? Uh, and I'm, I try not to think about that. I try to think I've got 40 years left. So make the most of it. Don't, don't let that be an excuse for uh, laying around on the sofa or not doing anything. Uh, the, other, the other thing I'd like to talk about is... How did I get to where I am, or why am I the way I am? Why am I not more negative? Why, 
I, I could still be back in Lombard, Illinois, working at a weekly newspaper, which would not be terrible, but I've done all these other things. And how did that happen? And when I try to analyze myself and, and, and think about things like that, uh, there are people who, who have been in my life who have had a huge impact on me. And I think probably the first one I can think of is my grandmother, who, uh, who raised the eight, the eight children when, when our mother died at an early age. She was 34, gallbladder uh, surgery infection. She died in 1944 uh, during World War II leaving eight children two years old to 12 years old with my father, who was not in a position to handle eight children. He was a working attorney. So uh, one of the heroes in my life, I didn't know this till much later, but my grandfather stepped in uh, when, when the aunts and uncles were talking about splitting up the kids. And uh, my brother Dave and I, we were supposed to go with this aunt or uncle and the other kids were being broken up, et cetera. And my grandfather, uh, we called him Pop. He stepped in and said, we're gonna take over these kids. We're gonna raise them. He said that to his wife, uh, who we ended up calling mom. She was 60 years old I, and she took over eight kids, two to 12 years old and, and raised them. I, I don't know anybody who would want to do that, but she did. Uh, now, both my grandfather and grandmother, we moved, uh, or she said to, to her husband on two conditions. One, uh, we moved to a bigger house. And two, whenever I need money for clothes, etc., you don't give me any argument. And he said, okay. So that's when we moved from uh, uh, Chicago to this little town of Lombard, Illinois, 10,000 people, 20 miles west of, of Chicago. And we had this great uh, idyllic childhood where I got my first job as a paper boy, et cetera. Uh, I learned so much there from my grandmother, who I think invented tough love. I mean, she put our chores on the bulletin board in the kitchen, like Richard, you don't go play baseball until you clean your room and sweep out the garage or sweep out the, the basement or cut the lawn. She had chores for all of us to do. And we did them or she would, well, I hate to say she'd spank us with a, with a, with a hairbrush or, or something. Uh, but I learned a lot. I learned to do the job. And she would always tell me when I was doing something and if I got sloppy, she would say, a job worth doing is worth doing well. So do it well and give it your best. And so I did that throughout my life and almost everything I did. And, and that goes back, uh, back to my gr uh, grandmother. And it's where I think I developed a sort of a, a, not only a positive attitude, but this attitude of no matter how hard the job might be or how difficult the decision might be uh, if you just work at it and do it and do your best, uh, good things will come of it. And that's what's happened in my life. And I have, I have followed that, I don't know, thousands of times, I guess, to the point where it just becomes second nature to me. Uh, if, if, if you got a problem, see what it is, talk about it, and then, and then solve it. And don't, 
don't panic, don't, don't fear about it, uh, be afraid of it, just do it. I hate, I hate to use the, that Nike thing, but uh, ju just do it. Now, one fear I can talk about that I learned how to deal with it because of what my grandmother had said, and that was with public speaking. Uh, I never did a lot of public speaking in high school or college, a little bit here and there. But when I got to the Miami Herald, I got it. I was in sort of a position where they had a speakers bureau, and um, they asked me to speak. And this this was speaking all over Miami at clubs and you know garden clubs and PTAs, etc. And I thought, holy cow, how do you how do you speak? I never really had given sort of formal speeches, if you will. And so I talked to some people and uh, one person I still remember, they said, uh, when you talk, look out at the audience, pretend like you don't see heads of people, but you see all these cabbage heads and uh, all the people had the same heads, they're all cabbages. And I got, I got a, a laugh out of that. Um, but they, the, main, the main thing I did I told myself I was a reporter then, but my ambition was to, was to be an editor, to, to run a newspaper, run a daily newspaper somewhere. I didn't know where it ended up being uh, Long Beach, but I knew I'd have to give a lot of speeches, a lot of talks, because I could see the editor of the Miami Herald. He was being asked all the time to give talks here, there, and everywhere. So I told myself, how can I how can I get experience doing that? And the best experience was well, my name down for the Miami Herald Speakers Bureau, because then they were giving me, uh, they were getting requests from this club and that club, the Rotary Club, whatnot. And so I was asked to give these talks and I started talking. And these were groups of 20 people, 40 people, 50, 60, and what I discovered was this, and I, and I still I still follow this. I discovered that an audience they want you to succeed as a speaker. They're 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 a friendly group. They're not enemies. They're not they're not going to throw tomatoes. Although I must say I have talked to some groups that were not the friendliest. But most of the time, people, they want you to succeed and they're ready to applaud. They're ready to laugh. And you don't have to be fearful of. I talked to somebody the other day at a, a funeral service where he and I were giving eulogies. And I said, how do you feel? He says, oh, it's terrible. I, I don't know. I, I just don't. I, I know what to say, but I don't think the people out there, I don't think they're going to laugh at this joke I'm going to tell. And the, I said, what are you talking about? They're going to, it's, it's fine. Uh, but it's, and this man was like in his seventies and he still had, had that fear. He, he did well. He went out and did it anyway, which is my advice to, to myself and to others who might ask, just go out and do it. Just don't, don't worry so much. I think we, I think we over worry situations and, and let ourselves get, uh, in these worry modes uh, instead of uh, the more positive approach, which is I've got something to say. These people want to hear it. Uh, over the years, I've worked at it with different jokes that I know will get a laugh to be personal, etc. 
So th those are some of the things that have helped me. The It goes without saying, my family has helped me. My wife, Pat, is one of my biggest supporters and helpers uh, or whenever I get into difficult situations. And so we've been married almost 50 years. You can't put a price tag on that. That's just priceless. Uh, my, my advice there is find, find someone, find a partner like Pat, and, uh, and you can get through almost you know anything. And that's what I do, what I've tried to do with my life, and that is to tell myself that what you're doing is important as a, as a newspaper man, as a journalist. My column now, I try to write about, not try. Uh, I do write about people who, who don't have a loud voice in the community people who are doing great things, but don't, don't get a whole lot of notoriety. Uh, and that's just very enjoyable doing, doing that kind of a, a job. So I have this, what I think is a very positive outlook on how things are going to work out, that they will work out, but that doesn't mean you don't do anything about it. You have, to, you do have to work hard. You have to prepare for what, whatever it is you're doing. And, when comes time to make a change in your life, whatever it is, you just have to think about the pros and cons. And if you think it's a good thing uh, for your career or your family life, uh, that sort of thing, then you just do it and uh, uh, do away with your fears. And, and then you become, I guess, uh, you become courageous. And I'll write a column about you being a, a courageous person. So, Katie, I feel like I've just been jabbering on and on, but I, I do. I want to thank you for uh, inviting me to do this because it, I think it's good uh, for every anybody, in this case myself, to just uh, think back about important people in your life who have helped you out and why or how have you gotten to where you are? How did that happen? It just doesn't happen by some, you know, overnight miracle. Uh, there is a lot of work. And again, when I look back, it's on, it's on these different people. I, I'm sorry, I know I've left, uh, I've left a lot of people out because in my advanced stage, I've, I've met a lot of people. Let, let me bring up one other that just came to mind. Gene Lensner, a uh, longtime civil rights leader in Long Beach. He just passed away uh, in February. I remember talking to him so many times about civil rights and, and what motivates him, et cetera. And he told me what I thought was this great story that, that's influenced me. He said when he was a little bit younger, a little bit younger to him was like in his 60s. He died when he was 96. Um, but he said he would be at these different cocktail receptions and parties and things. And he'd be in a group uh, uh, with people and invariably somebody would tell a joke and the joke was usually at the expense of some minority, uh, you know, a black person, Asian, Jewish, which is what uh, Gene was. And he said at first when he would hear these jokes and things, he'd kind of laugh at them or wouldn't say anything because even though it offended him, he felt like he, he had to be kind of be quiet to sort of be friendly with these people because they were 
influential in the city, et cetera, et cetera. He said, finally, after this happening too often, and he was in the civil rights arena, he decided he shouldn't be doing that, that he should say something whenever that happened. And so he said from then on, whenever someone would tell a joke like that or make fun of other people, uh, he would stop them and tell them he personally was offended by what it was they were saying. I asked him, well, how, how were you treated then? He said, well, at first, people were very upset that I would do that, especially the people who had told the joke or whatever, and they got angry at me. And I told myself, that's too bad. <clears throat> this is the right thing to do. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to sit on the sidelines. I'm not just going to write notes or whatever. I'm going to I'm going to speak out uh, publicly if the, if the occasion demands it. And of course, he started doing that, and he became one of the most influential civil rights uh, leaders in the city of Long Beach uh, because he had this voice and he was not afraid to say what was what was wrong and what offended him, that didn't mean that he didn't have a sense of compromise. He didn't just go around yelling at people, etc. cetera. But he, he, like he said, he didn't want to just sit on the sidelines. Uh, he wanted to get into the game. And that, that affected me a lot. I, I had done some of that, but not, not as much as Gene had. And I find myself now saying what offends me if, if someone says something to me that, that is offensive. And of course, through the newspaper, we have covered many, many stories about uh, in, in this area. Uh, and I credit Gene Lensner with a lot of that. So I think now, Katie, it's time for me. I think I, I don't know if I've run out of time or not. This is a great subject, that, what you're doing. And so keep it up. And I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing stories of other people on how they've how they come around to making decisions oh I, that remind i've got to tell one more story if do i have time yeah one more of story this has to do with leadership long beach it's a great organization in the city developing uh leaders uh, it was started in 1989 and i was in the class of 1996 and it's a 10-month program to learn community issues and talk to people, et cetera. And you start off with a three-day retreat in the San Bernardino Mountains at this camp. And you, you'd have very activities, some very physical ones like climbing a tree and jumping off into the air and trying to grab a trapeze that's, that they have out there in midair 30 feet above the ground. Well, I did that in 1996, but I was a little younger then. I now have been on the retreat teams for Leadership Long Beach for the last uh, nine years. And about three, four years ago, when I was 78, 79, the retreat team goes through some of these activities before the class members come. And so I'm looking up at that tree and I'm thinking, do I want to do that? And I think... God, I've got to do that, you know, just do it. And I remembered all these things I told myself. I was kind of afraid to get up there. This was more physical than anything. But I said, you can do this. So I went up there and I climbed up there and the, my retreat team members were applauding. Well, I got up 
on this little uh, little outcropping up on the tree where I was standing. And then you're supposed to leap out and grab this trapeze, which is controlled by the guy on the ground. You can bring the trapeze closer to you or farther away, depending how far you want to jump out. So I said, put it out there. I don't know. I think it was like eight feet, maybe, or seven feet. And I jump out and I grabbed it, but I only could hold on with one hand. And so I fell off. But I was tethered, you know, they tether, you don't fall onto the, the ground. <laughs> but I got down on the ground and, 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 the, and the guy, guy running the program said, well, how do you feel? I said, oh, I was terrible. You know, I failed. And he said, what are you talking about? He said, you didn't fail. I said, yes, I did. I'm supposed to grab that trapeze and come down, you know, on the trapeze to the ground. And I didn't do that. And that's when he said, you know, winning isn't every what you accomplish so much as whether you tried uh, to do something. And he asked me, he says, how many people 79 years old do you know who, who would have even attempted to climb up there? I said, I don't know. Probably not too many. He said, well, give yourself some credit then. You're not a failure. If anything, he says, you're a big success. Well, that was very emotional. And again, I think it, it shows you can learn stuff, even if you're, quote, older. I hate to say I'm old. I don't like that. Sounds like you can't do stuff. So I, I learned that when I was 79. And I, and I like, Katie, to think that I'm still learning, no matter how old you are. And I think that's another, uh, another thing that, that helps you because it makes you keep thinking to solve problems, to solve issues, and not to sort of give up and say, well, I'm just too old, I can't do that, so I won't do this, I won't walk around the block, I won't do some simple things because of, of my legs hurt or something. So that's that's my story, and I'm sticking to it, and that's the end of my story for today. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, okay. Dad, Dad, thank you so much. I I mean, I feel like we could talk for, you know, hours more. I mean, I love, I love hearing your story. Some of those stories I've heard before, but some, you know, some are new and I always, I just think you're, you've always been such a wonderful storyteller. And I really thank you for being so generous with your time and with your stories. And I just, ha I want to tell you, you know, you were talking about kind of people in your life who have influenced you and, you know, kind of helped you be more courageous. And I, I mean, you are one of those people for me, like 100% who I think has taught me about courage, has taught me about integrity, about kindness, about um, being open-minded, about, like you were saying, you know, doing your best work and loving what you do. I mean, all of those things. I mean, I just think so much of the person I am is is what I learned from you and, and watching you and just how you, how you move in the world. And so I want to thank you for that. And I, I just feel so grateful to be your daughter and, and, and I love you and thank you for doing this. Well, you're welcome, Katie, you <laughs> and Kelly are two of my most priceless treasures. And uh, thank you for all you've done. And you have learned well, uh, 
you are doing really, <laughs> really a great job with your family and your career, etc. So keep that up, okay? Thanks, Dad. Love you. Love you too. Thank you so much to my dad for being so open and generous with sharing your stories and wisdom and insight with all of us. As always, would love to hear from you what you've learned from this episode and how you may incorporate those lessons into your own life. This is the final episode of the Learning Courage podcast. For now, thank you so much to all of my amazing guests for sharing your time and your stories with us. I've learned so much from each and every one of you, and I am so grateful. So until next time, thank you so much for joining me in Learning Courage.